Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. This previously recorded episode of Back from the Borderline may contain mentions of social links or initiatives I took part in that are no longer active or relevant. To follow the podcast on Instagram, connect with me directly, or support the work I'm doing, visit backfromtheborderline.com. Hi everyone, today you will be hearing part two of my interview with Courtney Cook, author of The Way She Feels, My Life on the Borderline in Pictures and Pieces. This episode won't make much sense if you haven't listened to part one, so if you haven't, stop right now and go back one episode and listen to part one of my interview with Courtney. We get into some really triggering topics in this interview, so if you are not in a safe space and you're not in a place where you are comfortable hearing about self-harm and suicidal ideation, I recommend that you skip this episode. Now that we've taken care of that, let's dive straight back into my interview with Courtney. You have entered back from the borderline, where we walk willingly into the darkness within our minds and return home to ourselves transformed. I'm your host, Molly. I spent most of my life numbing the pain and emptiness inside me, unaware that my self-sabotaging behaviors and thoughts were destroying my ability to connect with myself and other people. One day, I decided I was sick enough of my own bullshit to hear life calling, telling me it was time for a change, and I decided to answer that call. On this podcast, we'll learn that when we see ourselves as the hero of our own journey, it gives us the best chance at finding our inner truth and integrity. Together, We'll learn to hold complex feelings, expand our consciousness and self-awareness while making meaning of our suffering. Are you ready to find out who you are underneath the weight of everything that's been keeping you stuck? If the answer is yes, follow me down the rabbit hole of psychological and spiritual growth. I'm so glad you're here. And with that, let's dive straight in to the episode. To tee things up properly and so you're comfortable and familiar of where we were at in the interview at this point, Courtney and I were discussing using sex as a form of self-harm. So Courtney is about to go into her experience with her sexuality and intimacy in college. So let's dive straight back into the interview. Speaking of this idea of normal... I went to a big 10, you know, school. I went to university of Michigan. I like, I blacked out multiple times a week for periods of time. I would, you know, I drank excessively. I had a ton of risky casual sex with people that made me disgusted with myself and I hated it, but it was 
even though I knew I didn't like it, it was something I sought out, I think, because I didn't like it because it reinforced these ideas I had about myself or I thought like feeling wanted by someone else would make me feel like I was a whole human or worthy of existing or whatever it was. But the culture of Michigan was like, you know, the, the saying is like, it's not alcoholism till you graduate or like, you know, it's, that's like, we always Jesus. said that or, or in the, like, if you blacked out, it was funny. It was like, let's all get together at brunch and say like, this is what you did last night. Oh, you know, cause we took turns or everyone was having, like, I remember after I had my first, very first one night stand with like a true stranger, like didn't know his last name, knew nothing about him, met him that night. And I went to my friend's house and she was a year older I was a junior, I think, and she was a senior and she was living with girls that I didn't really know. And I was like hanging out with them and I was saying like, oh, I had this one night stand. Like I want to literally want to off myself. This is awful. And they were like, oh, that's just like everyone's first one night stand. It's like totally fine. That's normal. And so it was like, and you're like, that's not normal. Well, I was like, ah, okay. And then I just took that at face value. So anytime I had a one night stand, it felt like I wanted to die. I was like, that's how it goes. Everyone feels this way. But the thing is, is like, I'm all for one night stands if they make you feel empowered and happy. But the thing is, is that for me, they weren't. And that's the problem. It's not that they are the problem. It's that the way that I experienced them was that I was using them as a way to confirm that I was awful or to feel awful or whatever, instead of being like, I'm a badass bitch. I love it. Yeah. Because if that works for you, like, I'm not going to say that's inherently problematic at all. It's the way that I was utilizing it. That's the issue. I was the same where I would try to position that like, I didn't care. Like I was cool. Right. Like I was sexually empowered. I would be so open to talk about my sexual escapades with my friends. Like, and I was also even that girl around guys that I'd be so open with like my sexuality that guys were like, wow. Right. But in reality, I look back on that and I realized like I was using that as like a way to like say, basically, I already knew I was probably going to be slutty. And so I was putting it out there before every, before anyone could call me a slut. I'd call oh, myself yeah. a slut, right? Yeah. And then afterwards, feel just debilitating shame. Um, afterwards, feel like a receptacle, right? Like that's how I respond. Like re- can like relate to it. Like you'd walk, you leave from like a one night stand, and you just feel, you know, it's it's not it's not inherently wrong to have a one night stand. But if you're walking away and you are feeling like something in your gut is just like that yeah. wasn't right, that sticks with you. And then also you have the worry of like was I drunk? Like, did I use a condom? Like, I don't remember. Like these are horrifying things. And for people to just be like, that's normal. Like, I don't, I am so sex positive, but like, that's not normal. We should never put ourselves through these little mini traumas. If I didn't think that I was going to at least hook up with someone like on the dance floor at a bar, like it wasn't worth going out to me. The only reason why I went out other than like this FOMO of like, I might miss something. I think the thing I thought I was going to miss was like validation or acknowledgement that I was like a human or even existed or like worth pursuing. And there a lot of times for me, it was, yeah, it wasn't necessarily like a sex drive thing. It was this, it was based on wanting to feel like I had any worth or reason to be pursued Also, so often it wasn't something where I felt like I was able to vocalize like, you know, my needs or my wants or like that feels good or that's what I'm interested in. A big thing with sex positivity is 
having autonomy and being able to say like, this is the experience I want. What do you want? How can we work together to make that happen? What are you comfortable with? What am I comfortable with? How do we marry those things? How, what should we steer away from? People with BPD, if you're anything like me and you're using sex as self-harm, you're showing up to the sex, like whatever. Like you don't, if someone was to say, what are your sexual needs? I would wager to say that a lot of borderline people would go, uh, I don't know. Like, just I mean, tell me, yeah. tell me what to do and I'll do I it. I think <laughs> I very much felt that because I was seeking out sex as a form of validation, I felt that my purpose or role in that sex was to provide whatever the other person wanted. It was not at all about me getting off or feeling good or feeling empowered or whatever it was. It was like, prove to me I exist in a body, prove to me I'm wantable, that I'm lovable, that I'm alive and, and hurt me. I think a lot of like, if I gravitated towards self-harm or still, you know, engage in self-harming behavior as some way to feel like I exist or that I am, or like to punish myself or whatever it is. So often I think self-harm when I was young was like, I feel pain emotionally, or I feel numb or this emptiness is like hollow, aching, weird, all encompassing black hole of a feeling inside me. Mm. If I can feel pain, at least it's not this like emptiness and this hollow, terrible feeling. And so it was like, yeah, if you, for me, a lot of times a partner could have said anything and I would have been like, I'll do that for you because that's, I'm still getting what I wanted out of this, which is to feel something. If you really think about that, going through our lives and exercising sex in that way so many times over such a span of time, like I I experienced myself and I'm sure you, it sounds like you did too. That fucks you up. And your perception of self and your self-worth. And I think for me, like going back to this idea of like, if you're saying that you, if you knew that you'd be labeled a slut, if you can get ahead of it and say, I'm a slut and reclaim that title theoretically before others can give it to you, that that can somehow mitigate pain or something like that. For me, like I hit puberty when I was literally eight, like it was horrible. I was in third grade, like had like B cup boobs, like full pubes, acne, like greasy face, like everything was going very quickly and everyone else was children. And I was a child, but I was also like maturing And Mm. a lot of people and parents and like adults labeled me as like fast or a slut when I had done literally nothing, but it was because I even had boobs, like had the audacity to get my period at age 10 that I was somehow already. How dare you, Courtney? Yeah. Right. Like that I was like (laughs) a threat. And so I think sometimes I wonder if it was like this self-fulfilling prophecy of like, oh, you think I'm a slut? I'll show you a slut. Like, here we go. Like, if you've labeled me this since I was literally eight, like, here you go. I'll give it to you if that's what you want. One of the predetermining factors for having like sexually masochistic tendencies that we do in BPD, like using sex as self-harm, basically. It's just the easiest way to say it, right? Because we are, we're, um, is being sexualized at an early age, Right. Yeah. And it sounds like my like fifth that grade teacher case. straight up told my parents in our parent teacher conference, he was like, Courtney is cleavage. And my parents were like, okay. It was like, it wasn't like she needs to wear higher cut shirts or like her outfit is inappropriate. Like literally nothing. It was just like, Hey, I want you to know your daughter is tits. And they were like, we live with her. Like we buy her the bras. Like we're very aware. Like, was this a female you- or male teacher? Oh, this was of- a dude. But I had 
like parents were like, oh, you can't hang out with Courtney. She's quick. She's fast. She's a slut. And it's, I had not even, I had done nothing. My self-worth was so low at points that like people would say things that now I'm like, that was like horrifically mean. And I, and now I would recognize as like, you're being cruel and that's not any bit kind or helpful or productive or anything. But at the time I was like, well, I guess it's true. I was so in need of validation and so afraid of being abandoned that I would Mm. hang on to anyone, even if they were worthy of abandoning. (laughs) Because I felt that I can't be left by anyone because that'll prove that I am not someone that is like worth sticking around for or worth pursuing a relationship with. I've been a serial monogamous dater my whole life. And it was, I have dated so many people that I literally had nothing in common with. We could not say two words together or didn't like, there was no sort of shared anything or people that outright treated me really poorly. And I would accept that because it was better to be wanted by someone that, and like acknowledged by someone, even if that acknowledgement was painful and poor than it was to not have someone that theoretically wanted me enough to be my partner, even if they were cheating on me with other people or being really mean to me or, you know, whatever it was like, that was, it was more important to me to be validated in that way than it was to, and like be mistreated than it was to be alone and not have that validation. Like I hurt so much for my little self. Like when I think back to like me in third grade, feeling like something was wrong and not being able to tell my parents and just making something up. Or like when I think about feeling so hated by, or like judged by teachers for like literally just living in a body that I had no control over, or when all the friends, parents in seventh grade met and like decided I was a lost cause. Like it makes me so sad to think of like Mm. little me and this like discrepancy between how I felt like, or who I was or what I was putting out in like the world's perception of me. And then how I internalized those views or judgments or whatever it was, and then assigned them as fact. Like, Mm. I think I did think for a long time that I was a lost cause and that I would never get better. It was like, every time I went to treatment or got help, it never stuck. And it's because I wasn't treating the actual problem, as I said, but I was like, maybe they're right. You know, I internalized it instead of thinking, like, no, that was mean. I was like, yeah, well, maybe I am easy or maybe I am ugly or maybe I am whatever it is. Only just in the last couple of years do I feel like I'm actually getting in touch with like my intuition, you know, like that, Mm -hmm. the thing that, that's that little voice inside of you identifying with something higher than yourself, your higher, higher self. And just say the person you want to be, you aspire towards your highest being or whatever, who you truly are inside. And when someone says that, only now can, if someone says to me, you're such a bitch, not that that happens to me. I don't sit or I don't, I don't surround myself with people, but I, (laughs) yeah. in my, when I was 19, if someone would have said that to me, I would have probably on the outside acted like it didn't matter or been really combative, but I would have walked away from that and felt probably like a bitch and really questioned myself. Now, if someone says that I have something within me that I can say, is that true? Like, is this true? What does this person mean to my life? Like, does their opinion matter to me? Yeah. Am I actually a bitch? No, I'm not. They are probably just having a really rough time and I have feel compassion for that person, right? When before we approach recovery, I feel like we bring a lot of suffering upon ourselves because yeah. we take 
what everyone says so much to heart and we don't stop and think, is this true? Right? Like, yeah. is, is this true? And we don't do it with our own thoughts either. Like we, no. we, we think something and we think I have a lump on my boob. I'm going to die. Right. Not like oh, yeah. I have a lump on my boob and maybe it's like just my lymph node or like, I, it's like, like maybe a, I'm getting my period. Maybe I need to go to the doctor. Maybe it's ex- a cyst. Like, there exactly. are a million things, but, but if, immediately you're going to die or your boyfriend doesn't text you back. Um, immediately he died in a car accident or he's just yeah. over you. Right. I actually, and- <laughs> I gave an interview recently where I talked about finding the middle ground, I guess, mm. in life. And, um, I have like a quote in my book that says like, um, you know, I want to feel okay when life is quiet. I want to feel okay when life is soft around the edges. Um, because for so long I felt like unless things were extreme, they weren't, they didn't exist or something like that. Um, and I think that's why I would accept pain as a replacement for just mediocre or middle or whatever. And I had said in this interview that, I've realized since being more comfortable in the middle ground that a lot of times the example I gave was, you know, maybe if my partner doesn't text me back, it's not that they died or that they hate me or that they're like planning to break up with me and ruin my life. A lot of times they might just be taking a nap. (laughs) Like that's okay. Because when I don't respond, most of the time it's because I'm like in the shower or I'm working or I'm taking YouTube or or yeah, like I'm doing something else. But I for so long was unable to recognize that even though I knew that when I was like not responding, it wasn't because I hated them. It, I couldn't like flip that onto myself or something that I think is important is that in my recovery, my healing, whatever, it's not that I don't have those thoughts anymore. It's just that I'm able to separate them from myself and realize that I don't need to act on them. And Mm. I can feel the pain that comes from feeling like I might be being abandoned or, you know, let that emotion like pass, but I don't need to give it power to influence my actions or to react in a way that like, Oh, I'll leave them before they can leave me. Like I don't need to make these rash decisions, but it's not that I don't have those thoughts anymore. I might have them with less frequency, but they still exist, but I now like identify them. I call it like my borderline brain and like my rational brain. And it's really like the DBT concept of like wise mind and like using your wise mind to like realize what's rational and what's not. But like Mm -hmm. if my borderline brain, as I call it, like, you know, tells me that I'm being like, my childhood dog we had to put down two years ago. And like, my brain was like, he's leaving you. And it's like, that doesn't make sense. He's 13 and a half and his body's failing. Like he's a golden retriever. He had a really good run. He's not thinking about you. He's not like Courtney sucks. I got to die now. Like that makes no sense. But my brain still told me that, but I have to have the ability to say, okay, brain, I see that you're in pain. You're like projecting this thing that's stemming from like feeling sad and like, you know, you're feeling pain. I acknowledge that but I don't need to like have like a really, really intense reaction to it. I can acknowledge it and then move on with my day. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times I've had to find solace in compartmentalizing emotions where because I've had trouble returning to baseline as so many people with BPD do that if like something, like I've always said when, even if like a fight or a miscommunication or something is resolved, I'll still be sobbing. And I've always had to be like, I'm not upset anymore. I've worked it out. I just still like, it takes a bit for me to catch up. And I've always said that even before I had BPD and then it made more sense when I was diagnosed Mm -hmm. or not before I had BPD, before I knew I had BPD. Yes. And 
I now I've used the thing in the past where like, if I was super sad over like a breakup or something like that, and it was not going to be like a day sadness or a week sadness, but it was going to be like a thing that I was going through. I would give myself, I'd be like, okay, you get like 10 minutes or however long today. And you're allowed to feel like as sad as possible in those 10 minutes, but then you have to keep on going. Like you have to do your homework. You have to do your life. And I would like put it away in a box. (laughs) I'd be like, you're allowed to feel like abandoned and sad and so lonely and like depressed and hate yourself. But then you just have to move on. Mm Because if I feel that way all the time, like I will never get out of it. And eventually you stop. If if you give yourself an hour a day, eventually you need 45 minutes and then smaller and smaller. And some days you forget, you even get to give yourself permission because you don't need it. And like you work on it. But, you know, I have to, I've had to separate these thoughts because it's not that they have gone away. It's just yes. they're less prominent or loud and I'm more able to handle them. And I think that's really important to me, at least in my belief of recovery or whatever that looks like from BPD. It's not that I haven't had this like mental setup that I've been working with my whole life and this inclination towards certain patterns or beliefs. I'm reframing the way I see things. I'm trying to work with my neuroplasticity to rewire up in my brain town. But if I'm unable to necessarily completely overhaul what it looks like. At least I have the power to acknowledge and then not give those things as much power to influence me. And it's not that I don't have them. It's just, they don't need to be the ruler of the Courtney life world. And that's for me really empowering because I hate, sorry, this is such a tangent, but I hate when people think of recovery or healing or anything as this, um, like there's like a, like depressed and then like a better or like a, like, you know, and there isn't a better I, for me, like I've written an essay that was published by lunch ticket magazine and it's online. I can link you to it, but I write that like good and bad or like better isn't a place or a destination. Like I have to work every day at using coping skills and taking my medication and reevaluating irrational or impulsive ideas or thoughts or whatever it is. But that treading water for me is worth it. Like I have to keep up with those things because Mm -hmm. if I don't, I know that I will slip back into patterns and I will give them power. But for me, I feel, I feel in control and empowered by that idea to know that like, yeah, this is my framework and this is what I'm working with, but I don't have to succumb to it. I have one more question for you before I ask you a couple of things about your book and then we'll tie it up. I'm so curious on getting another person's take on Instagram and mental health memes. There are memes that are like so funny where I'm just like, okay, I can relate to that. Like, and I I wish I could bring one up, but then there are certain accounts that you know, and it's just like the focus is so much on like, I just want to self-harm. I don't want to live anymore. Like I feel so much worse after I spend time looking at all of those things. I want to know what you think about that. So earlier I mentioned that when I was at like the peak of my suffering prior to reaching any treatment or having access to any treatment in seventh grade, I had surrounded myself with a group of individuals who were going through um, similar like self-harm, suicidal ideation or attempts, like things like that. And for me, I, I write about it in my book and we called ourselves the crew and we had like this idea, um, like the crew 
the whole purpose of these friendships were to keep each other alive to the point where we had this thing called the chain. And it was that we would remind each other if someone was like, I'm going to like off myself tonight, we'd be like, you can't because the chain and the chain was that whoever they were closest to would go next because they were so sad. And then whoever that person was close to would go next and eventually we'd all die. So you couldn't kill yourself because you would, everyone else would kill themselves too. And that's how we kept each other alive. It was like the chain, you can't do it. We'll all kill ourselves if you kill yourself. We were all struggling so much. And as I said earlier, I think that in an effort to feel understood or at least seen by others who were experiencing something somewhat similar, we actually accidentally taught each other a lot of very negative behaviors and kind of like cross-contaminated each other with certain beliefs where Mm. for me, I found so many, you know, if, if my friend, like if I was already self-harming when I met these people, I found new methods or new ways of hiding it or whatever it was. Cause we would share, Oh, I struggled and I did this. And it wasn't to share in an educational way. Like this is how you should do it. But by you know, disseminating that information, I was like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Probably not even consciously, you know, but I would implement it. And I think that even though it felt nice to be seen in my sadness and be, because it it felt really shitty to be around friends who were so happy, or, or at least it seemed to me, be like, why can't I feel like that? But at the same time, like if I was only around sadness, it brought me down even further. For me, when I see accounts like what you're mentioning, in an effort to feel seen and understood and find community, which we are so desperately seeking so often, just like mm-hmm. for this, if we feel alone in a public, like a public space surrounded by people, you know, all you want is someone to look at you and see you and be like, I see your pain. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is that instead of feeling seen and then being able to, you know, have that somehow like in, like, invigorate you to help one another or anything it ended I think it ends up actually bringing both of you or that community really really problematically down a lot (laughs) and for me like when yeah like with this friend group I felt that I learned a lot of negative behaviors and I would and I'm sure I taught them and I don't I never meant to and no one ever meant to I don't think but it ended up really backfiring. And I think that those accounts are similar. We're in an effort to be like, see my pain. I am hurting so much. They are actually causing pain. Yeah. It's the cyclical thing. So I think it's similar with these accounts. Like you are in pain. You want to be recognized. You share your experience. You're they're getting some positive feedback and the positive or like validation in like, mm-hmm. they are being com- like, people are commenting like me too. But then mm-hmm. the problem with that too, is that when you build community only on sadness or a friendship or anything, then there's, you are less motivated to get better because you think, oh, well, this is all we have in common. This is what our friendship is based on. What will I do then? And that's what I think artists struggle with all the time. Like, oh, I want to get better, but I only make art about my depression or my anxiety, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. If I get better, I won't be an artist. I won't be a writer. It won't be this. And it keeps you stuck. And it sucks because actually it's such a lie because if you are feeling sad and you're making art about feeling sad. A lot of times depression or any of these things are such a like a motivation and inspiration suck 
Like you cannot, it like takes away your ability to create. And then if you were feeling better, you actually might have way more ideas and be more able to create them. So you have that energy and that vigor and whatever, but it's like this lie that you get told. So if you have a friendship, that's like, well, I like my friendships are so important. If I get better, they won't like me. If all you have in common is sadness, I would argue that's not a real friendship and they should want you to get, you should want that for each other. Even if you think you want that, but if you're keeping each other stuck, sometimes the most beautiful and lovely thing you can do for a friend who you are close with and you know, you're negative for to be like, we need to take a step back and we might be able to reconvene later. But right now, if all we do is say, I cut, you cut, I hurt myself, blah, blah, that you're not, you guys are damaging. It's like you're abusing like, each other. Yeah, the most loving, loving thing to do there is say we need to take a break from this codependent, yes. shitty thing we're creating. And I hope yes. that we can heal and come together and be good for each other. But if I love you and you love me, we need we know that this is not actually serving that. And the yep. most loving thing I can do in this moment is to say we need to take a step back. I get the need to kind of want a space to just wallow because we don't have any spaces where people really understand how fucking bad BPD hurts. Like it hurts so bad. And so I can understand why, especially teenagers want to go to these Instagram pages and I see them. It's like, I say the phrase circle jerk. It's probably so (laughs) No, It's like a circle jerk all the time too. too. (laughs) It's a circle jerk of sadness. And I'm always like, yeah, it's like, it's a, it's like a self-flagellation slash masturbatory. I know self-flagellation is not at all in the realm of masturbation, but in the way that you're doing something, it's masochistic. Yeah. There we go. That's yeah. It's like going on chat roulette and being like, this person will be my therapist. It's like, no. And when you're hurting that bad, you don't have the mental energy or ability or compassion to provide for yourself. So, and if you don't have that for yourself, you obviously don't have any leftover for anyone else in, in terms of talking about like things aren't black and white. We can't like completely split things down the middle as wholly one thing. A lot of times growth or recovery isn't all this like beautiful, shiny, Ooh, I'm so happy all the time thing. Like it is a change and that change isn't inherently easy, even if it's positive, you know, and that's worthwhile of recognizing when I met with that therapist, I mentioned that works with neuroplasticity. My main coping mechanism before I started meeting with her was to yell. I call it yelling at myself where I would, you know, I've mentioned this idea where I separate the irrational thoughts And I create this like kind of like other persona in my head. I'm like the borderline brain or whatever Mm -hmm. um, that things are being filtered through and or like my anxiety or whatever it is. And I would yell at those thoughts. I'd make that part of myself feel stupid. So I'd be like, I can't like because I have irrational. I have OCD. I have irrational thoughts like all the time. I'll be like, you know, I probably because like I didn't like say I love you to this person before they drop me off means they're going to get in a car accident. It's going to be my fault. And I've definitely killed them. And also that will set up this chain of events. Like, you know, things that like genuinely do not make sense, but they feel Mm -hmm. real. But when I told my therapist this, and I truly believe this was like the best coping skill ever. I was like, you just yell at yourself till you feel better. And she was like, you know, yelling at yourself, even if it's a part of yourself, you want to change is still yelling at you. And if you're telling negative thoughts to that aspect of yourself or assigning negative beliefs to that, you're ultimately just feeding a negative belief about yourself. Even if it's that specific Mm. part of yourself, it affects the whole shebang. Now, when you have an irrational thought, how do you 
walk yourself through that now with your coping skills? I've learned to mitigate having irrational thoughts in the first place. There are certain things I do where like, I will sometimes like not, I won't even have like use the oven, you know, but I'll like leave and be like, the oven's probably on. I'm probably going to like kill my cat somehow accidentally because of this. So like I've heard or read that certain things can be helpful where, you know, say you did use the oven and you're going to be worried. Like you totally know you're the person that's going to be worried that you turned it off. If you like, you can take a picture before you leave mm-hmm. that has the timestamp that says it's off. If you need to rely on that, you can also say out loud, like the oven is off and that somehow triggers a different part of your brain to like maintain that memory in a different way than if you just thought it. Mm. Um, or for some people they'll do the thing where like, they'll say out loud, like it's Wednesday and I turned off the oven. And so when you recall the memory, it's like, cause sometimes you're like, I remember turning it off, but was it last time I turned it off or was it now? So I'll do certain things that like, mm. if I know that I'm going to be anxious about it, I can kind of like mitigate that anxiety by providing myself that like baseline. I recently had like an actual health scare where I was like referred to a breast surgeon at an, at an oncologist. Like I, they genuinely were like, this is like, might be a problem. Oh, and wow. I like, it ended up being fine, but I was very nervous. Obviously it was like very scary, but at the same time, like all I could do was like, okay, but if I have, if I know something is a problem then I can fix it. And like, so even if I was in this internal taking notes of if things were going wrong, even if I did have something that was like legitimately of concern, then it's like, well, I'm glad I'm aware of it. Cause now I can, you know, like getting a diagnosis. I'm glad yes. I'm aware of it. Cause then I can actually take steps to help assess, fix whatever. And so, you know, I try to, I try to just run through the, like, what do I know? What do I not? What's working? What isn't? What evidence do I have to support this belief? I can take that info and say, that's okay. You're scared. Maybe we'll just move on. The part that you just mentioned is really powerful too, because that's, I think that we tend to make things worse on ourselves when we beat ourselves up about something, right? It's, it's the best thing to do to tell ourselves it's okay that you feel this way. It makes sense that you feel nervous to look in a mirror because if you look at it like a scientist, one of my favorite podcasters, her name is Dr. Caroline Leaf. She's a neuroscientist too. So many different self-help gurus talk about inquiry, right? But they're like examining the thought and saying, is this true? What's What's the supporting evidence? Something that was really powerful for me is I had a therapist tell me that we are not responsible for our first thought, but we are responsible for our second. So if your first thought is something that is really awful or mean about yourself or really, you know, not based in truth in terms of like Bloody Mary's in the mirror, whatever it is, you, if we don't have control of that first thought, we Mm -hmm. do have control of our second thought and how we react to it and how much power we give that first thought. So like, that's beautiful. And that's particularly helpful for someone like me who struggles with intrusive thoughts that many people like. The thing with OCD is that a lot of people have intrusive thoughts that like, you know, when you're walking over a bridge and like, what if I just jumped off right now? And most people, they get them and that they don't assign any meaning to them. They just keep going. But with people with OCD, we get stuck on them and we assign them, wait, do I want to? I don't want to, but what if I want to? Why do I have Or normal or normal people, normal people don't think about that, right? Like I feel like we think that. I'm wrong. I'm demented. I'm whatever. Mm -hmm. And so- Everyone has those things and they think that was weird and they move on. And so if you're able to recognize that you didn't bring that first thought, it's not 
you don't actually want to jump from the bridge or whatever. And you can say, Hmm, that was so weird. And then you just, you're in control of that reaction of like, that was so weird. Instead of questioning, actually the French have a word for it or a phrase called lapel de vide. I'm sure that's not how they say it, but I do Mm. not speak French. And it's means it, it translate to, uh, translates, I believe to the call of the void. And Mm. it's been studied. I wrote a poem about this once, which is why I know it, but I might be rusty and people can you tell me I'm wrong, whatever. But regardless, this concept is interesting to me where it was asserted in whatever I read, wherever it was, that the I, people have this call to the void to reaffirm their will to live. When your brain says, I want to jump this and you think, no, I don't, then it's like your body being like, swag. Like, <laughs> we're going to keep wow. going. And so it's like, everyone has these thoughts. What if I just chuck my phone off the roof? Why would I do that? I don't want to. Okay, well then you won't. You know, but I won't I, because yeah. I'm a badass. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like this, like weirdly, like powerful thing. You're like, but I, I could, but I won't, you know. And it's like some I weird acknowledgement. And so for me, that's always been comforting. Where it's like, yeah, like sometimes when I drive a car, I'm like, what if I just like drove off the highway at a million miles per hour? And it's like, well, I don't want to. And that was weird to think that. And then instead of getting stuck and then like whatever, it, you can focus on. Isn't it cool that I used to want to die? And now I don't. Like you can flip it. Yeah, have the power to flip it, and that's cool. And, you know, I love that. And this makes me think of, um, there is a book that's called Existential Kink. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. No, but, but basically, I want, I, now I want to read it. <laughs> you should really read it. One of my really good friends recommended it to me. And essentially what it is, is like, it's this thought of taking the thought of you, like, because a lot of us with BPD think we're trash, right? We have this belief that we are just like worthless trash people. And the thought behind Existential Kink is like, flipping it around and making it work. It's like someone calling you a bitch and being like, yeah, I'm a bitch. I'm a dirty little bitch. Yeah. You're reclaiming it. You're reclaiming it. And so the whole process of this book is like being like, yeah, I'm a worthless little bitch. Isn't that fun? Like (laughs) blah, blah, blah. Right. And flipping it around. And I think that like after I read that. It's almost like a fake it till you make it. Right. Like just like I'm going to own it. Mm. And also saying like, it's almost like checking your inner saboteur and being like, I see what you're trying to do, but I'm going to play with you, right? Like I'm going to play with you and be like, yeah, ooh, nice. You're a bitch. You stupid bitch. Like let's go shopping, bitch. Like that kind of like attitude with your inner saboteur. Yeah. This like Paris Hilton, like, like, (laughs) And, and also if you just like, if you think of it that way, it automatically makes it just not that serious, you know? Yeah, it loses and its it, power. It does. And so sometimes, like, I will have, like, a really, like, dark thought. A lot of times for me, like, a dark thought will come. And it's and, and also, for me, I find that I don't even know what it is quite yet. I'll just automatically feel like, uh-oh, big sad, right? Yeah. Like, big sad. Something yeah, that, like, freak- impending doom uh-huh. is brewing. And, and And someone – and I have a very attentive partner, and he struggles with his own, like, trauma stuff. And so he, we're both hyper aware of each other's moods and, and stuff. Yeah. And so I will shift ba- barely at all. And he's like, are you okay? What's up? And he can sense when, like, the cloud – he's like – he yeah. said you can sense it. He says he sees that, like, it's like a cloud goes over me. And My on, mom all of a has sudden, always said the same thing to me. She's like, it looks like suddenly or somewhere else. Like, yep. I, it will be – sudden and I'll notice. Yep. But she's, I think because she's so close to me in the same way that like you and your partner are so attuned to one another that other people wouldn't notice that shit. But she's like, to me, it's abundantly clear. Like something is happening. She's asked me like many times in my life. She's like, where'd you just go? And I'll be like, you know, like I'm, I'm suddenly 
trapped in whatever doom feeling or whatever I'm thinking. And the thing is quite often the thoughts are so dark or they're about like, he'll have said something. It may, it's actually not even about him half the time, but something will have happened. And I'm like, maybe one bad thing happened at work. And so I'm already in my mind planning what my next job is going to be. And he'll come downstairs and I'm just making a smoothie and he's like, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm fine. Right. Like, because I don't want to And there's that face of like, I'm not fine, but like, Mm -hmm. I'm fine. (laughs) And so, yeah, I'm the, the existential kink part comes in handy for me when it's just like, when I have that thought and I'm like, oh, I just need to throw everything away and start over. Right. Throw the job away, throw the boyfriend away, throw the, (laughs) throw the life away. It's like, oh, I see what you're doing there. Like inner critic, you know, that the, yeah. this part inside of me, and like, I'm oh, not- you cheeky little thing. Look what you're doing. It, exactly. And it's like, it it's calling out that that's actually not you. The person who's witnessing that thought is you. And I love what you said that your therapist said, you're responsible. You're not responsible for the first thought. You're responsible for the second one. So I just yeah. want my second one to be a little bit of like a laugh. Like it's like, look, all right. It's okay that I'm feeling this way. Other people feel these same same thoughts, and I'm just gonna have a sense of humor about it. If you bottle something up, it'll eventually come out. And so, if you give it the acknowledgement it needs in the moment, then it doesn't snowball into this horrible thing, and then it doesn't have to come out in this like horrific way. Exactly. Well, I have two more questions for you before we tie this up. Where can my listeners find you on social media? Where can they find your book? And what's next for Courtney? So my book is available everywhere books are sold. So if you want to request it at your local indie bookstore, you can do that. But you can also go on Barnes & Noble online or into Barnes & Noble, or you could go on Amazon or IndieBound or whatever method you feel is most accessible or you know, good for you. It's also like on Kindle and mm-hmm. ebook versions, if that's better um, or preferred. So, you know, find it where it, it you feel it wants to be found. <laughs> the way she feels my life on the borderline in pictures and pieces by Courtney Cook. And it was published by Tin House on June 29th, 2021. Love it. And I, my website is CourtneyCook.me. My Instagram is at the way Courtney feels. That's really the only public like place that I'm actually around. So what's next on your journey? What's I am currently freelancing Mm -hmm. as an illustrator and writer and social media manager. And those all, you know, influence one another. Social media is like, you know, putting graphic or visual work with copywriting. So Mm -hmm. it's the, the combo platter, but I am going to be kicked off my parents' health insurance in October when I turn 26. And Mm -hmm. so my goal is to find a job that gives me insurance because um, as I've spoken a lot about, you know, treatment and medication and therapy, I'm someone that very much needs these things. And so what's next for Courtney is finding a way to continue to have access to my needs. Um, the things that keep me stable and alive. And that's the plan. Other than that, I probably am going to take a nap with my cat, you know, maybe watch some TV and get stoned. And that's, that's what's on, that's what's on the radar. (laughs) I love that agenda. And I have a similar agenda planned. So 
that's what I love. You know, the, the simple, the simple things, simple things, what you've done is so inspiring. And thank you. I'm so appreciative that we had a chance to talk and that you're doing what you're doing. I also think it's very inspiring. Well, thank you. Well, it's just a, a circle of love better than a circle say, jerk of sadness. I was literally about to say, do you want a circle jerk? Like you're inspiring. You're inspiring. No, you're great. Circle <laughs> jerk of just inspiration. Like, just keep it going. <laughs> oh God. Well, I bet I have a feeling you'll be back on the podcast again one day. So I would love um, that. I will leave the door open for a return guest, but um, we will just wrap things up here. And thank you for being on. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right, you messy, amazing, emotional, fabulous human beings doing this life thing. That is it for today's episode. I want to thank you so much for listening because out of all the millions, billions of podcasts in the world, you chose to listen to mine. And that means a lot to me. And if you listen this far, I know you never want to miss a new episode. So to make sure that doesn't happen, click follow in your podcast player of choice and you will be alerted every time I drop a new one. To help me grow and help the podcast reach as many people as possible, go ahead and leave an honest rating and review. Not only that, I love to hear your feedback, so please share it with me. I read every single review and you just might hear it read out loud on the podcast. To connect with me directly, follow me on social media and keep up with all the new updates. You can find that all at backfromtheborderline.com. And as always, any articles, resources, or other helpful information you've heard today can be found in the description of this podcast episode. So don't forget to check out the show notes. And until we meet again, remember, life is a circle, a cycle, a process, separation, initiation, return. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.